0: Welcome to Based on a True Story, a live monthly storytelling event where we ask Chicago's best writers and storytellers to take a true personal story and turn that into a wild tale of fiction. Our first story comes from Chicago writer and storyteller Linda Sullivan.
1: My brother's lying on a crusty bedspread at the inn on 130-something street next to the Denny's. And not for the first time. I'm lying awake late at night imagining a grim movie scene motel and worrying. I can see it. A smudged plexiglass pane and a bored clerk with an all-over-the-place beard in his booth. There's an old-timey radio and a wall full of keys on screws. I see the thin lines of dirt pressed under the clerk's nails as the crumpled bills slide under the window, and a clunky key ring with a worn-off number slides back. There's a dead plant in the lobby and a wet paint sign leaning against the wood paneled wall. Little globs of tiny black hairs crowd in the carpet corners near the door. The inside of my brother's motel room is dark and damp, claustrophobic like a coffin. The only light, a naked bulb flickering in the bathroom when it's on and when it's not. The dark is like a sentient being that swallows you. There's nothing in there but you and the demons you came with. It's impossible not to consider how it is we got here to this middle of the night worrying and the inn at 130 something street. My brother is three years younger than me. We grew up together. Little golden heads, all curly-cued and wispy, playing in the pool, building a pillow fort, the best pillow fort, standing on stools in the kitchen, covered in flour and laughing. We used to take field trips to Navy Pier with our playgroup. We wore tiny blue caps for our kindergarten graduations and secondhand shin guards for soccer practice. We tried on all of our clothes twice a year, so Mom could switch our seasonal clothes in this dresser and that Rubbermaid, and this took an entire day since we ran back and forth between the bedrooms like models on a runway, amped up on goofy juice, cracking each other up. I don't think my brother was made for college. I regret that in our enormous suburb with endless highways of privilege, there was this accepted narrative that took us straight to college applications. My dad was a pipe fitter, after all. Thoroughly blue collar and we weren't rich like all of our classmates. Dad worked overtime to achieve luxuries like a small summer family vacation something he had never had as a boy. And even so, there wasn't a clear path to any alternative vision of success. Not yet. No one in my mom's ladies' group was saying gap year or recommending vocational training for their kids or others. College was the success. And, for example, working as a bagger at Jewel was a job for teenagers to teach responsibility, not for grown adults, seeking perhaps to move up into management positions. And this is all a lot to unpack in the middle of the damn night, especially from a family that provided us with a pretty fucking fantastic childhood. And even so, here we are. So higher ed wasn't the place for my brother, but he went there anyhow. He joined a fraternity, barely slid by in school, and had a bummer of a breakup his last year of college. Somewhere in here was where I lost the GPS coordinates on my little brother. He stole pills from our dad and went to rehab for the first time as a teen. The boy I knew until then was clever and kind. He loved hard conversations about the environment and being outside just in awe of it. We loved to outwit one another and play car games on the road trip. Sometimes I get stuck right here, in a spiral of all the things Timmy and I are the same about. The way we used to spend the night on the pier at Carol's Cottage, cocooned in our sleeping bags, (laughs) freezing but willing to suffer for the story. (laughs) How we passed books back and forth and argued about the fictional characters who was more realistic how when we searched for easter eggs we shook them to find the only only the ones with money inside and left the rest for our baby sister to delight in jellybean heaven there were signs of a shift more than a few but perhaps my narcissism clouded them from a clear view i figure We drank together once before the Umphreys McGee show, Timmy's favorite band, and I felt we were connecting, delighted to begin our journey as adult friends. This, though, was before I knew how bad bad could be. I was early in my cocktail career and mixed something all artisanal that I thought was impressive. It was a whole drink perfectly diluted with a swirly, twirly little citrus garnish. And we cheered and sipped. And when I looked over, Timmy had taken it like a shot. And then we were leaving for the train to the show in my surprise I just climbed on the train without a word, carrying the feeling of a peach pit in my tummy. Timmy isn't the only one who's felt that ugly, angry voice inside us telling us how much we fucking suck. My serotonin inhibitor helps tell that chemical clan inside me to shut the fuck up for a goddamn minute or at least, keeps her occupied while I try to live my life. My therapist asks me questions that burst my imaginary bubbles of untested hypotheses and theories I made up. During some chapter before today, I had found these tools. Timmy had found only 54 ABV and the inn at 130 something street he had been in rehab so many times that most of the rehabs wouldn't accept him anymore there are rules of course to keep the tenants safe and once you break them it's a rough road to repair and i understand that addiction It's a tricky thing to hold because you have to live with it for a time. You can't solve it or erase it or bury it. You just have to hold it and wait and hold and wait. And it's so fucking uncomfortable for everyone involved. It's rich with chaos and mixed with love. Which makes it confusing. It's like striking a match to every emotion all at once. And some days, I think hope is a wonderful ledge to stand on, and it buoys me. And other days, hope is a thin, wispy plume of smoke, evasive and gone already. I've begun to hope for this that Timmy will wake up and not drink and go to sleep and wake up and not drink. And maybe one day he cries, and that feels like release, and then he sleeps and wakes up. Or he calls his sponsor, and that's a healthy conversation, and he sleeps and wakes up. And then there is a day that is just fine, He doesn't need to unalive himself or make his brain all swimmy with alcohol or take all of anxiety pills at once instead of just the one at a time. That after sleeping off that just fine day and waking up, maybe the next one will be better, even by a fraction. And again, sleep comes, and with the sun, another go at it all. Because little by little, I still hope that he unfurls like a fern with his sweet little lisp that I don't remember from the before. And that he begins to know the inside of him, inside of him, and follows through and I get to see the human underneath it all, finally, again. True The blonde bouncy curls are gone and it's hard for him to make eye contact for very long, but he's here in my hope, warming my coffee cup, standing next to me so that our arms touch, calling me on the phone just to say, hey, followed by a long, calm pause, and crouching down on the ground to be eye level with the dogs, who he moves to like a magnet. This is okay, he thinks in my mind. It's nice, even. And maybe I can see all the ways we are the same again. We can find the cool and the beautiful and the interesting things in this life and wonder about how complex we all are and see how rewarding it can be when we face ourselves.
0: Our second story comes from Chicago actor, writer, producer, podcast host, and super duper awesome guy, Kevin Alves. That's me.
2: You know, it's a strange feeling nailing someone inside of a coffin. It's definitely more exhilarating and exciting than it should be that's for sure. It's not something you should want to do let alone be elated to do but there you are with hammer in hand just driving that 5-inch nail through the lid with a huge grin on your face. And the fact that she was still alive only heightened it even more. I mean like for real how many alive people have you been able to nail inside of a coffin in your lifetime? I mean that opportunity doesn't present itself every day. I mean you definitely don't get those kind of opportunities these days. Oof. I mean, come on. Okay, I take your silence to mean that you are nonchalantly dialing 911 under the table. Let me go back a bit and explain, okay? The year was 1989 and I was awkwardly working my way through my sophomore year in high school. I didn't have much going on for me. I was a long, lanky weirdo that looked like a good kid, but secretly I was into morbid and dark shit. Not like Satan worshiping dark, but I was obsessed with death and macabre things, sort of a goth in disguise. So when I heard that she was coming, I got pretty fucking excited. Her name was Princess Carcella. Her occupation... She would travel the country and bury herself in concrete until auto dealerships met their quota for their big sales events. Most of them were like, she'll stay in there until we sell every 89 model on the lot. She was once buried in concrete for 68 hours. This time she was hired by Johnny Beck Ford in my hometown of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. He was changing manufacturers, so he had to sell all of his Fords to make way for the hot new economical car called Hyundai. And Johnny Beck knew the only way he was going to move that many units, and that was by burying a person alive. (laughs) It was Monday, and I was in the car with my mom after school when we heard the commercial. According to the wild inflections of the afternoon drives at 5 DJ, He, she was to be nailed inside a wooden coffin, and that coffin would then be covered in concrete. There she would stay until Johnny Beck sold all of his Fords. This was happening Saturday. My head jerked hard to the left. Mom? No. Mom? No. Mom? Fine. Of course it would be fine. My parents were friends with Johnny Beck and his wife. Or at least my dad and Johnny were friends, and my mom put up with his wife because they all hung out. And, And you know, I'm not even sure why. He definitely wasn't the kind of guy my dad normally hung out with. Johnny Beck was the guy whose cheeks and nose were always red from booze, and who would wildly shoot his Uzi off the back of his boat at any given moment. So, you know, car salesman. The rest of the week, my focus was shot. All I could think about was Princess Carcella under a truckload of concrete. Like, how does she eat? Does she have an oxygen tank in there? Like, what if she gets diarrhea? Because I want to reiterate, she's going to be nailed inside of a wooden coffin and buried under several feet of concrete. You just can't hop out of that shit if something goes sideways like yeah. diarrhea. fucking Rhea. <laughs> I couldn't stop Thinking about her. This would be the craziest shit I'd ever seen in my life. But many years later, that would be dethroned by the infamous video Two Girls, One Cup. The week oozed by. Every passing minute felt like 20. Each day felt like it was two. Why was this week taking so long? What was this torture? Was God slowing down time to keep me from achieving a lifelong dream that I didn't know I had until I heard about it on Monday? What would cause such a loving deity to be so cruel? All I wanted to do was see a person get nailed in a coffin and buried under concrete. Is that so? wrong. (laughs) The week finally finished its torturous slog and the big day arrived. When we pulled onto the lot, it was exactly what you would expect for a big car sale event. Multicolor flags were draped and flapping between each light pole. Bunches of balloons were wildly jerking in the wind. And the jams were being blasted from the van of the Gulf Coast's rockin'est radio station. 93.7 WQID, the most music and the most winners. They gave away shit all the time concert tickets, albums, even a car. If 93.7 was at your event, you knew it was gonna be fucking hot. We parked the car and started making our way towards the showroom. As we walked up, we were spotted by Kim Beck, Johnny's wife and part owner of the dealership. She gave my mom a big hug and launched directly into chatting and catching up. I didn't want to miss anything, so I told my mom I was gonna walk over and find a good place to watch. I milled through the surprisingly large crowd towards the front. Just outside the dealership under a large white tent was a big wooden box that had braces on the outside that was secured into the parking lot's asphalt. That was to help hold the box's shape once hundreds of pounds of concrete were poured in from the spinning truck parked next to the tent. And in the center of that wooden box was her coffin, her resting place for the next however many days it takes to get these Fords sold. As I moved up to check out the coffin, the PA speakers cracked to life as Johnny Beck blew into the mic. (laughs) Hello? Hello? Can you hear me okay? The crowd let out an excited, yeah, accompanied by some hoots and hollers. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Johnny Beck, and I want to welcome you to my dealership today. Be sure to grab yourself a free hot dog and a Coke from our concessions table. We know the only thing you should be hungry for are our low, low prices. He held for laughter that never came. Now, the reason we're all here, please let me introduce to you the one and only Princess Carcella and her mentor and master of the impossible, Dr. Xenon. The doors to the dealership dramatically opened and there was Dr. Xenon. He was tall and pale with sunken eyes, a thin black goatee and slicked down thinning black hair, both of which you could tell had been recently dyed. He was wearing what was once a nice black suit, but now it was faded and disheveled. Draped over his shoulders was an equally disheveled black coat with a deep burgundy liner. And around his neck, he wore a tarnished gold medallion with a green crystal in the center. He was really leaning into the part. (laughs) As he stepped out, he raised the cloak to his sides with a flourish to make a grand entrance. Like a shitty melodramatic vampire, he strolled to the wooden box, while 1950s horror music played through the sound system. Once he was alongside of the box, the music abruptly stopped, and then he dropped the coat cloak to reveal the star of the day, Princess Carcella. She was probably in her early 20s, a small frame and equally as pale as Dr. Xenon. Her hair was dark brown, stringy, and partially hung in her face. She wore a faded red dress that was more nightgown than anything, and she was barefoot. She smiled brightly but somehow it didn't match the rest of her face. Her smile said, happy to be here, but her eyes said something else. I couldn't place it. I think it was because I was too excited to see her get buried. (laughs) Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Xenon said in an undeterminable accent that seemed to change without warning. Today, you will witness something you have never seen before. A feat so dangerous that those who are in tune with the dark forces of the universe can survive. Today, we will do the unthinkable. Today, we will dance the line between good and evil, life and death. Today, we will seal my protege into this coffin where she will be sealed in concrete. There, she will remain poised in the space between heaven and hell until Johnny Beck is able to sell every last one of these fine Ford vehicles. <laughs> Better buy years faster, she's gonna die, Johnny chimed in. The crowd was silent. Let us begin. Dr. Xenon then led the princess to the box and helped her step into the coffin. I was positioned so close that when she sat down, she was just about a foot away. Still, something was going on there in the eyes. But again, I was just too excited about what was going on to pay attention. As she sat upright in the coffin, the crowd gathered closer. Dr. Xenon took off his tarnished medallion and began swinging in front of the princess, as if he was placing her in some sort of hypnotic state. He then started to softly mumble some sort of magic incantation. He grew louder and louder and louder until he concluded by shouting, Shush! And as soon as the word came out of his mouth, the sky grew dark, the wind began to swirl, and the princess threw her head back and let out a terrifying shriek. The crowd leapt back and let out a collective gasp with a few holy shits and a couple of Jesus Christ peppered in. Princess Carcella lowered her head and gazed at the crowd now with a blank expression on her face. She is now in the trance of the dead where she will be safe underneath the crushing weight of the concrete. Dr. Xenon gently laid her back into the coffin. Inside there was a thin mattress and a small pillow for her head. He then reached behind the box pulled up the lid to the coffin and gently covered her now he said as he produced a hammer and a handful of nails who would like to do the honors without even batting an eye my hand shot straight out me me excellence xenon said as he handed me the hammer and nail Now, you wouldn't think it, but there's a lot of pressure when it comes to nailing someone in a coffin in front of a big crowd. It's kind of like watching someone throw out the first pitch at a baseball game. It could go just fine, or it could go horribly wrong. Now, I was not a stranger to a hammer, but I sure wasn't Jesus Christ when it came to carpentry. The last thing I needed was to be the guy who missed and broke his hand trying to nail someone in a coffin. I mean, no one wants that. It's just embarrassing. (laughs) I just needed to get it started. Then if I missed once or twice, it wasn't so bad. My hand was out of the way. So with all of my focus, I held the nail in place and I raised the hammer in the air and I swung it down and bam, nailed it. No pun intended. Swung it again, bam, on fucking target. After that, I was like a construction ninja. Bam, bam, two more knocks and that sucker was in. The crowd let out a cheer. Dr. Zenon then took the hammer from me and offered it to someone else. Hesitantly, a few people gave it a swing, but no one was willing to finish sealing it up. So I jumped back in and rocked down the last three nails. I really hate to admit it, but I've never felt more powerful. (laughs) Now that the coffin was secure, it was concrete time. There was a round hole in the lid that was fitted for a PVC pipe. This was to vent the coffin and give her air to breathe. Once the pipe was secured, the chute was attached to the back of the truck, and the concrete started to flow and plop down on top of the coffin. It didn't take long before the box was full and the coffin was completely covered. Her only access to the outside world was that plastic tube. Now she will dance with the shadows. Thank you. Now let's go shopping for some Fords, Johnny Beck yelled in. And with that, we were excused, and the crowd dispersed. Some actually stayed and shopped around the lot, but most people had come for the burial, so, you know, they left. I walked back over to my mom, who was standing with Mrs. Beck and the DJ from the WQID van. How was it, my mom asked. Awesome. I got to nail her in. Wonderful, my mother said. We, made a, we need to make some stops on the way home, so go run go use the bathroom and then meet me back in the car. Okay, I said. As I came out of the dealership heading to the car, I stopped by the now concrete block that was Princess Carcella. She had given me one of the coolest experiences in my life, and I just, just wanted to say thanks. I stepped up on the side of the box and looked down the tube. It was too dark to see her, so I just yelled down, Thank you! That was awesome! Good luck! And as I stepped away, I thought I heard her say, help me. What? I asked down the tube. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Must have been all the noise and the wind. So I hopped down and I headed to the car. So... I have this thing where I question almost everything I do or say or hear or fart. Because of this, I questioned that whispered, help me for the rest of the day. What what if I did hear that and she really does need help and if I don't say anything, she could die and that's on me for eternity. Or what if I didn't hear it and I cry wolf? Then that would fuck up the whole stunt. We'd probably get sued and I would have destroyed my whole family. And this is a lot of fucking weight just because I wanted to see someone get nailed in a coffin. Damn you morbid thoughts. (laughs) I couldn't handle it anymore. I had to go back and check on her. And if I didn't, if I... I had to go back and check on her. If I didn't and something happened, I'd go insane no bonkers and I didn't want to do that. This was the 80s and there was no therapy to work out your troubles. You went to the state house and used plastic scissors. So I decided to sneak out later and go back that night. When I skidded the brakes on my bike in front of the dealership, it was surprisingly dark. Usually the parking lot's lights stayed on for security, but for some reason only a couple were on and they were flickering. It never settles well. I should have grabbed a flashlight before I left. Nah, well, I hopped off my bike and started walking it towards the tent where the princess was buried. And, of course, with my luck, that was an area where the lights were not on. As I got closer, though, I could see what seemed like a green light dimly glowing out of the tube. I dropped my bike, and as I walked under the tent and hopped up on the concrete block, the light was brighter now that I was closer. I slowly looked into the tube, and this time I could see her. Her eyes were rolled back in her head so you could only see the whites and she was breathing heavily and her skin was glowing green. She was the light coming out of the tube. Well, I guess I just got freaked out and without thinking, I like, like, and she blinked her eyes and when she reopened them, they were back to normal, but her skin kept glowing green. You came back, she said. Why are you green? I whispered, yelled down the tube. It's the doctor, she says. He's not what he seems. He's a half-demon, and I'm the last of his human bloodline, and he's my essence to live. Locking me in this tomb is part of the ritual, but he's using the crystal in his medallion to drain me, break it, to stop him and save me. Did you say a half-demon? I yelled again down the tube. She says, we don't have time to get bogged down in the details. Just go! Go! Very, very confused, I stood up to figure out what the fuck was going on when, in the reflection of the dealership window, I saw a brighter green glow, only this time it was behind me. I spun around to see Dr. Xenon. His medallion was the source of the glow. I knew you were trouble the moment I saw you, boy! He raised his arm high in the air, and I could see from the glow of his medallion that he was holding something. It was... Sort of long metal? Is that a stick? No. A sword! Oh, shit! As he swung it down towards my head, I jerked backwards and fell off the box. The blade made a sharp clang on the concrete, and sparks flew from the tip. I scurried backwards on my hand, trying to get away as Xenon hopped down from the box and stalked towards me. Do you think you have been the only one to try to stop me? To try to destroy me? Many have come, and all have died! I shall live forever! I don't even know what's going on, I yelled. I just want to see a person get buried in concrete. <laughs> Dr. Zenon furiously raised the sword over his head, ready to slice me in two. Now, fellas... I'd like to take a moment to say I'm sorry for this next part. I know this goes way against the bro code, but there are very rare exceptions where this is okay, and I think a cursed half demon trying to kill me is one of those exceptions. So, as he raised his sword, I rear back and kicked that fucker as hard as I possibly could square in the dick. I mean, Right in it, like fucking hard, and he let out the weirdest yell, squeak, moan, whimper I had ever heard. He might have been some sort of half demon, but just like Wolfman, he's got nards. <laughs> As he crumpled to the ground like a broken cookie, I sprang to my feet, snatched the medallion from his deck, and leapt back onto the box. I yelled down the tube, "Princess, I got it!" Destroy the crystal, she screamed. I threw the medallion on top of the box and raised to my foot. No, you fool, don't. Sorry, doc. Your license has just been revoked. <laughs> and I brought my foot down hard on that medallion, and it exploded in a bright blast of green light. I jerked awake in my bed. I was home. What the fuck just happened? I went down to the dealership the next day. People walked the lot, occasionally stopping by to see if they could see her, but it was always too dark. (laughs) It was day four of no communication with Dr. Xenon or the princess through the tube when they brought in a demo crew to break out the concrete. When they pried the lid off the coffin, it was empty. Everyone said they must have been con artists that they had some sort of trap door for her to slide out of so they could rob the place and run, even though... Nothing had been stolen, and that theory made zero sense. Uh, Johnny Beck did hire a detective to find them, though. uh, Since he still had two Fords left on the lot to sell, and no one was in the coffin, basically Princess Carcella and Dr. Xenon were in breach of contract, and he was going to get his money back. He never found them, and died penniless from heart failure in a motel in Utah. Only... I know what really happened that night, and I don't even know what the fuck really happened that night. <laughs> Did I save the day? Is the princess safe? I mean, Was she even telling the truth? I don't know, and no, I probably never will. So, as a warning to all of you kids out there, <laughs> before you go dreaming of sealing someone up in a coffin, <laughs> think again. Because you could find yourself between a dock and a car place. Nailed it. Thank you very much.
0: If you're interested in performing, contact us at bigtalkpodcast at gmail.com or through our website at bigtalkchicago.com. And be sure to join us the fourth Tuesday of every month for a live recording at Jarvis Square Tavern located at 1502 West Jarvis Avenue right here in Chicago.
1: Blah, blah, blah. Big talk.